Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello, welcome to episode 37 of the Modern Classroom Podcast. My name is Kate Gaskell, Director of Teaching and Learning here at the Modern Classrooms Project. And today I'm joined by three exceptional English language arts teachers, distinguished modern classroom educators, and modern classroom mentors. And I will let them introduce themselves here in a second. But first, teachers, it's May. May, let's just celebrate that we are in fourth quarter in the remaining weeks of a school year that has been very challenging. So before we go further, I just want to send everyone who is listening that little message of hope that summer is coming. So without any further ado, I am joined today by three educators, and you may recognize them from a recent English language arts webinar. Um, But we are going to be continuing the conversation that we had on that recent webinar. Our premise today is very straightforward. We're going to be talking about English language arts in a modern classroom. I am thrilled to introduce Jackie Durr, Elaine Milton, and Alicia Cordero. Uh, Jackie, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, Tell our guests a little bit about your career in education and how you found the Modern Classrooms Project. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. My name is Jackie Durr. I am a English teacher in a middle school level, teach mostly seventh and eighth grade students. This is my 15th year teaching and my first full year of using the modern classroom model. And actually, we implemented it a little way into the year. So it was really cool this year, especially to really see the difference and how it was even possible to do this mid-year. So all of you guys that are listening that are hesitant to do that, I would say jump in with two feet. And actually joined here with Elaine Milton, who's my co-teacher, and we both found the Modern Classrooms Project the same way, which was through a colleague. And we saw how well it was really working in their classroom. And we're like, hey, we want to we wanna know what you guys are doing. Show us what this, me- what this method is. And um, really, it just kind of uh, bloomed from there. So that's that's who I am. And I guess, Elaine, you're up next. Yeah. Hi, I'm Elaine Milton. Um, this is my 10th year teaching at the middle school level, um, seventh and eighth grade, just like Jackie. And um, I really have enjoyed, I mean, Jackie kind of spoke to it, but it's really been awesome to see how our kids have blossomed this year in this crazy pandemic year with this program. I mean, it really has, this way of learning has completely changed the way that we do things in our classroom for the better. And I am really excited to see the growth and the excitement and the learning and engagement that our students have shown with this model. And hello, I'm Alicia Cordero. I have been teaching for 14 years, almost every grade, almost every level of high school English. I currently teach 11th grade and came to the Modern Classroom Project via recommendation of a colleague as well. Uh, really felt like I needed to bridge the gap between what I wanted to be doing in my classroom and what I've always been told to do. And the effects really have just been almost incalculable, really. Just, I love seeing the growth exponentially. I love seeing the way my students have developed this year, and especially in such a hard academic year. It's really been inspiring. 
uh, to see how the modern classroom has made learning possible for all of my students. Alicia, I know you've been on the podcast before, but Jackie and Elaine, welcome. Welcome to podcasting. Um, I want to start with one of the most commonly asked questions we receive. And I hope you forgive the brevity of this question. I, I think when many of us look back at our own ELA classes in our K-12 education, you know, I I was not an ELA teacher. I was, what is it, your your younger sister, your cousin, what, what, what is a social studies teacher to an ELA teacher? I'm not sure. Our best friends. Your best friends. Okay. So I was your best friend as a social studies teacher, but you know, a lot of, I think back on my ELA classes in my own K-12 education and I remember novels. So to dive right in by answering this frequently asked question, how can teachers and students go through a novel in a modern classroom? Well, I would say actually, and, and being sort of the newest people to this model, Elaine and I also hesitated, even with something short, reading anything, I was like, oh my gosh, how do we implement these texts into our classroom? And really, once we did it with something short, we realized that the approach would be the same, no matter how long the thing is that you're reading. So if you're reading a novel, or if you're reading a one paragraph, you're still going to be focusing in on the skill that you want the kids to come away from that text or that chunk with. So the number one thing for me that I would say is like, you know, really finding purposeful chunking of that novel or that text or whatever it is and finding those real like sweet spots of where to break that text up. So for us, that was like a really good starting point. Like, how can I break this up? And we also like to pull excerpts um, to just do a close reading. So if we're chunking it up, then we might, you know, pull a little excerpt to, to focus on for that particular skill. Um, which is really helpful. And then, you know, doing some kind of long-term response to literature journal or something like that, that they're working on throughout the unit is also helpful, similar to what you would do as you're working through a novel in a traditional classroom. Absolutely. And just to add, uh, you know, a couple other things, definitely chunking is a huge priority, especially if it's a longer work or a higher level work. Um, but some of the things you can encourage students to do and introduce them, one of the flexibilities of the modern classroom, you start to learn where, as Jackie said, those sweet spots are. You can introduce maybe a graphic of the novel. So when we're reading The Scarlet Letter, there are a number of different really great graphics. And so I can pull out uh, maybe like chapters three and, and four from this graphic novel and have them read three and four that way. Or I can suggest audio uh, books to help support students who are maybe emerging learners, ELL. Or you can do book tastings. You can do paired readings. You can do literature circles. There are a number of different ways you can approach larger texts with kind of like a smaller means. But as you know, Jackie's already made reference to, once you learn kind of the modern classroom approach in terms of attacking a text, you can use it similarly to de- and it really doesn't matter the size. No, absolutely. And just to add in, one of the greatest uh, benefits, I know this year it was really hard, obviously, to have collaborative and, and lots of small group talking, but, you know, really being able to watch your kids, you know, develop conversations about the things they're reading is a really powerful thing that the modern classroom absolutely fosters through a collaborative environment of learners. And and really naturally, your students are going to be gravitating towards the kids who are either wanting to read the same thing or reading at the same pace or, you know, the kids that want to look at the graphic novel version, or maybe there's a little group of kids that want to listen to the section together. And so it just really provides such a purposeful way to differentiate for the students and directly what they need. Oh, I really love that. Talking about not only are we 
getting kids to work together, read together, but then giving them choice of how they're going to go through sections of a novel. That's really powerful. I'd imagine you see, do you find kids more engaged then? Not only are the kids engaged, but the parents get really excited because they remember what we remember, what you've mentioned. It's a book in front of you and you're reading it. And yes, that is true. That is right what we do in the English classroom. But when they see the differentiation and the selection for differentiation that students have to attack a book, they realize that these kids are building real life skills. So when they get out of high school, if they're in a trade school, if they're in a four-year college, if they're in, you know, a two-year association program, they understand how to attack a larger text with these skills. For sure. And Elaine and I have just, we're we're reading um, The Diary of Anne Frank right now, which is a novel that lots of people read in some form or another at some point during their career. And we, or educational career, when they're a student, And we have embedded like little audio things right into that. And they have the option, you know, to listen to parts of it, to choose to read it. Like Alicia was saying, there's different ways that we could present it visually. So really finding some unique ways to sort of use the same text to reach all the different kids in your classroom is something that the the modern classroom really and sort of thinking about that way really kind of is helpful. I really love that because I I found in history as a, you know, I could embed historical footage, let's say, into one of my instructional videos. And it was really powerful um, to have that right in front of a student um, as part of an instructional video that they're otherwise that really wouldn't have been. I suppose, yeah, I could have done that in a lecture. I could have been, you know, let's all shift our attention to the screen in the front and I'll show this clip and then we'll do a turn and talk. And that was great too, But I think it's really powerful when a kid can have something really engaging that makes this topic come to life right in front of them for them to pause, rewind. Um, And I had never thought of doing that with a novel. I would have been so into that going through, you know, whether it's the Scarlet Letter or or the Diary of Anne Frank as a student. I love that. So it's important to acknowledge that, of course, ELA is more than reading books. We know that English language arts includes writing for many purposes, speaking and listening and reading multiple forms of text. And I, you know, we've had this discussion, um, the, the four of us, that we do wish that modern English language arts included more creative projects and sometimes less emphasis on standardized test preparation. You know, but we can say confidently that ELA is a diverse subject in terms of the skills that we are teaching and assessing in our students. So let's talk about those other areas of an English language arts curriculum, writing, speaking, listening, and how have you incorporated this using the modern classroom instructional framework? How have you created blended self-paced lessons around these aspects of ELA? I thought it was really interesting how when I was going through this program, I realized that a lot of writing can be multimodal. Hmm. Say more about that. I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, we think oftentimes that you're writing, you're sitting, it's a individual process. You're a lone wolf trying to get through a paragraph. And some of the things that I was able to do with the use of this program was kind of embed listening and speaking into that writing. So you have your thematic journal for me for chapter six of the Scarlet Letter, but you and your buddy are also using it to create a flip grid, which has to do with speaking and writing itself because you have to write out 
kind of like the review for chapter six for this flip grid that you're going to submit. And then all the other students are going to listen to your review of chapter six, and they're going to be recording what you're saying on their thematic journals. So it's really a way to incorporate all the different elements together and really in a way in which I, A, wasn't creative enough to truly think of before, but B, didn't see the possibilities or the functional use. So I've really enjoyed being able to embed writing, speaking, and listening at the same time in a lot of tasks that we would see as individualistic and just simply pen to paper where I know students could be doing more. No more lone wolves attacking paragraphs. I love it. (laughs) That's going to stick with me. So to tag team into that idea of not being lone wolves while we're writing, you know, I think a lot of people when they first see, you know, or start to think about how they're going to implement the modern classroom model into their room, they lose the idea that, oh, I have to eliminate these whole group things. And that's totally not the case. And so, you know, writing is really powerful when students can do it together, because we all know you send them to the to their desks or their areas with a pencil and they're coming back with a blank document or blank piece of paper. They're, they're going to just be, they, they, they'll be writer's block. No one knows where to start. And so something that we actually did that was really powerful was some whole group brainstorming using some technology that was very, very, very low stakes. So it was not required. There was no prep work. And we used like a wheel, actually, it was like an interactive wheel. And it was like, spin the wheel. And then here's what we're going to brainstorm today. And just to get them into the framework of like, oh, this is like storytelling, right? I could use the same way that I would talk to somebody about this in my writing. And so, you know, having middle school students, they love to talk. They, they talk about everything. Well, and I love how, yeah, you're recognizing that you're harnessing this, you're building a routine and just to, 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 to break down that writer's block. Right. Absolutely. And so even though we were focusing on brainstorming, that didn't mess up where they may have been individually, you know, within the unit. It was still really good practice for them to say, oh, that's a great idea. I could go back to something that I already had written and add this idea in. And so, you know, Alicia, you're totally right. We have to get away from the idea that writing can't be multimodal and and has to be done, you know, independently, right? Well, and the way that we structured our, like, we just, Jackie and I just finished a huge writing unit. Well, where the uh, final result or the student's final product was that they came out with an essay, a completed essay. And we found that, you know, targeting our lessons to specific skills or the aspects of the essay that we wanted them to include, doing some of that whole group practice, like Jackie was just saying, um, and then having their mastery check be to go in and add to their essay another body paragraph or, hey, let's go back and add an anecdote or, you know, let's focus on conclusions or writing a thesis or whatever it was that we were doing, they would continually add to that. So they had this big mastery document, which we actually just called the master document that they continued to add to throughout the unit. Um, and, and that's what, you know, we would be able to provide feedback on that and work with them individually, but also, you know, as they were they were growing their final product as we worked through the unit, which was really awesome for the kids too. I think that that is a commonly misunderstood element is that people will sometimes, you know, uh, assume that a mastery check always has to be this separate mini quiz uh, that's kind of removed from a final product. Um, And 
I I mean, for writing projects in my social studies classroom, even I would do something similar where a a mastery check might be like submitting an aspect of your writing, submitting the intro paragraph that you wrote in class practice. And then you're achieving mastery by adding any revisions from me or a peer. I don't know. I just think there's, it, it all stems to a larger fictionalization of the individualistic writer. And so that we see in assessments, everything is a student produced, right? Individual students. There's no room for collaboration in any standardized testing at all. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't include that when we're teaching students the writing structures um, and help them with understanding A, what collaboration is, and B, engaging in collaboration in a higher level order of thinking when when writing. So I think, you know, both Jackie and Elaine spoke to the, the variable of ways they do that. And then they incorporate mastery checks, which aren't, again, singular in just here's a multiple choice, but you're showing me the application of skill. What's the acquisition and where is the learning taking place? And it's a really easy way for teachers to assess where their students are. So when we're talking about like a data-driven classroom, you're just consistently building data. You have something to pull from and it's so tangible and present that any administrator or anybody who walks in, you just be like, yeah, here we are. This is what we're doing. Here's what we're working with. And these kids have done this and you have so much evidence to support your learning. Yeah. it's it, that, that is fascinating to me because Alicia, you kind of highlighted two of my favorite aspects about teaching with the modern classroom instructional model, that idea about taking data-driven instruction, it's beyond a buzz term now, and mastery-based learning. You know, data-driven instruction, this phrase would often frustrate me because it seemed that I got very little opportunity to, in professional developments, to truly examine student work. And then when I did... (laughs) With good intentions, yeah, uh, it was usually work that was a couple weeks old. So it was kind of this outdated snapshot, and it couldn't necessarily inform my instruction for every student the following day. And when I started teaching with the modern classroom instructional model, that changed. You know, a, a student's plan for the day is directly based off of the data I have in front of me. And every student's plan is going to look a little different based on that. And then my other favorite aspect of teaching with the modern classrooms model, which I've talked about before, was mastery-based learning. This was so impactful for my own teaching practice and for my students. Um, I can say I really saw content and skill mastery and still confidence, then therefore it just enriched any collaborative discussion-based activity that we had later on because the students just felt so much more confident in their content knowledge in the in the writing they were producing. So I'd love for, you know, just a quick minute, dive into all things mastery while we're talking about this idea. Um, I'm curious, you know, about what mastery checks, the different forms they might take, if you still include summative assessments at the end of your units, and just kind of how you monitor student progress and mastery throughout a unit. Yeah, for sure. And, And you know what, I think so often, especially now with high stakes testing and particular different types of assessments that you're either sometimes, you know, doing on a more than just your classroom level. So like something that's like school-wide or county-wide or wherever you, wherever you teach, right? And so to really be able to have, to give the students the power over their own learning in that way, where they're really taking ownership of like trying really hard 
on whatever that mastery check looks like is so powerful. And so to, to really offer variety in those is such a neat thing because they're, they're so tired of a multiple choice, you know, type of assessment. Especially a lengthy one. Oh gosh. Or one where they're, you know, reading something super boring. I mean, for lack of a better word, (laughs) find me an English test where the reading passage is exciting, you know? And so to give them opportunities to show, thank you. Right. Just to show their mastery of this skill using something that has been engaging for them is, is, um, is amazing really. And so, you know, obviously, yes, there are times where a quick mastery check that's multiple choice is the appropriate one and, and the most beneficial for everybody. But there are, um, we've used lots of little things, a lot of um, reflective writing, even for some mastery checks where you give them a really clear rubric of here is what I can expect. And, and, when you're deviating from something that's a little bit more multiple choice for, for me, that's the most important part. As long as that kid understands what that rubric is or how they can achieve mastery. And so that this way, if they don't get there, you can really clearly say to them, here's where you are. And then they could look at that rubric and say, okay, I need to go back and review X, Y, and Z or fix whatever before I come back to you. That's the most powerful way for them to really take ownership of their own education. Because when that's really the, for me, the foundational part of a, you know, maybe non-traditional mastery check, something that's a little bit more off the beaten path. Mm -hmm. Have you ever, Jackie and Elaine at the middle school level, do you ever do um, like verbal mastery checks? That's exactly what I was just about to say. Yeah. So we, I mean, doing a verbal mastery check, allowing a student to, to show what they know um, in, in whatever way is best for them. And I think that that's one of the, the, the beauties of this instructional model is that we really do, it has freed us up within the classroom to be able to really individualize the way that we assess mastery. And so to be able to say to a kid, look, can you just explain this to me verbally? Explain what you learned today. Tell me what you learned today. Um, or, you know, explain this aspect of this skill that we're focusing on or show me. It really is awesome. And, and it's easy to do when you're inside the classroom with the student to just walk over and say, show me this. And it's really, that's super helpful too. I think that, you know, one of the big things that I've taken away from this entire model is that we really do have the capability of differentiating, truly differentiating versus sort of the differentiation that we did before, maybe making like a couple of versions of an activity. Now it's like really targeting, um, you know, what each of our students needs. And we have the availability and the flexibility within the classroom to do it with this model. Elaine, you can't, you can't see me, but I am snapping for the people listening at home. I completely, completely agree. Yeah. I would, you know, I would see on an IEP, for instance, um, oral assessments being, um, being a, a common accommodation and modification. And I was like, great, I'm here for this. Yes. I, I, I'm, I want to do that for the student. And <laughs> it was very difficult, uh, with, 25 other students in the room and it often ended up being kind of stigmatizing because that student would need to maybe come during my planning or come at lunch. Whereas when, when I taught with a modern classroom instructional model in a self-paced classroom, that was no big deal. I could very easily um, allow students to show mastery in different ways all going on at the same time. I just think that it's so valuable to have students be able to articulate 
what they've learned and how they've learned it. There are some assessments in the United States that require students to show proof of or understanding of how they've gotten to an answer. And it's something that is organically introduced and produced through mastery checks in the modern classroom when you are, you know, you feel this weird freedom that it's not as if anyone told you you can't, but now you just feel more confident that you can. You understand how to implement the items in a way in which it's not stigmatizing and it works best for each student in that differentiation model. One of the things I've been doing for Summative this year, the end of all of my units, is I've had students journal and it it's all feeding into their final, which they don't know yet because they're not there, but they will. Um, so hopefully they're not. Li- hopefully they're not listening to the Modern Classroom <laughs> podcast right now. They are listening. They need to let me know because I'm giving them extra credit. Okay. That's fantastic. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but uh, we they're going to do you know a, a larger breadth of understanding and some sort of a visual presentation dealing with how they can be active in their community and lead others um, to prevent treatment of X groups. So we go through an American Lit Survey in which we start with Indigenous First Nations and we move through to modern times. And so as we read the different time periods and we see what's happening within America, what I have them do is I have them reflect in a writing or in any other way that we have come up with that works for them on how they can actively in their community be a leader to prevent X items from happening. So they have to pick the items and they talk on it. So it's something that really does broaden the scope in terms of mastery checks of what you can assess students on. Sometimes in you know basic application of skills in a, in a worksheet, mastery check might relate to grammar. You're going to do this thing after we read it, but three out of the five sentences have to be compound complex. And I need you to highlight the subordinate for me. So you have the ability to really engage students with what they're doing and making them more proficient in understanding how they're doing it. I really love that. Do you mind if we talk about progress tracking real quick and progress monitoring? Uh, How do you, how have you found the best way to do that um, in your modern classrooms? Of course, you know, at the middle school level, Jackie and Elaine, and then at the high school level, Alicia, we know that that is, that is integral to keeping students on, on path to achieve mastery. How, what does that look like in your classrooms? Yeah, I'd say to start, you know, from a middle school level, obviously, you have to kind of approach it. These kids are just forming like that self-regulation to, you know, be able to say, this is what I need to do. And here's how I, you know, I'm going to do it, or this is where I'm at and this is where I need to get. And so, um, Elaine is the tech brains of our, of our partnership, of our teaching partnership. So she's really good at sort of creating something really visual for our students to self-track. And so, we will often have like um, something where they're able to like manipulate and like a game board style, which we usually, we had uh, one with Edgar Allan Poe that had like a little Poe head. And, you know, we were really, when we were doing that part, we were fully virtual. So it was really hard for us to know if they were using it or not. And then like randomly, like one student, like one day was like, guess where my Poe head is? And it was just like the most ridiculous statement. But I was like, it was out of nowhere. And it was like, yes, they're like really doing this on their own. Like they've been moving their little Edgar Allan Poe head across this game board. And so 
it was a really powerful moment though of of the students really taking ownership of that of that piece of their learning. And so we have a public tracker which is just their first names and uh, it's color coded and they got, they got really used to sort of watching that kind of it was very um it didn't always look exactly the same but it was always similar enough that they knew if they saw themselves in a certain area of it that this is kind of what it meant. But I think for any student it's really powerful you know, whether you see yourself not normally ahead and you're, you know, you're, you're like rocking it on this pacing tracker, but also the opposite, like no one really wants to be at the bottom of that tracker when everybody else is steadily moving along. So yeah, it's really motivating for them just to be able to, and you know, as they would complete an assignment to be able to say, can you move my name on the tracker and to be able to watch that progression visually and and so many kids I mean it became like a race for some of our students like hey like get up here with me like hey let's spin it and they and they motivate each other um they kind of you know build each other up they see where each other is and then they get excited you know when we do have a, a collaborative opportunity which there are many throughout the our, our units to be able to, you know, be at the same place at the same time so that they can work together. They get really excited about that. So I think it's really motivating for them. And we would always have like cute little gifts and pictures on our tracker that would be like, yeah, you, if you were ahead or if you had done an aspire to do or a, or a should do even activity in, in some cases um, that we would celebrate that. And at the beginning of class, when we would display the tracker, we would celebrate, you know, the students that were really on top of their game and, and, and really build everybody up. So it's really fun to, it was motivating for them. Yeah. I think um, people listening are probably like, Oh, well that's middle school. They're little kids, but I got to tell you uh, all those things are the same for high school level students, 16, 17 year old kids is what I teach. Um, and we have a public facing tracker. I found that one works the best for the style of the classroom that I teach and for my students. And I have seen the exact same items happen within my room when we were full virtual at the beginning of the year, there was a student and mine's color coded as well. So you have blue, red, and black, the colors that we have in our school. If you were in black, it's because you haven't done anything. And so two students in my third year class lived in the same apartment building and one girl went downstairs and knocked on the other girl's door and was like, how come you're not doing this? Uh, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> and so they buddied up and that young girl got her, her grade from a D minus to an A minus by the end of the semester, which is a big deal. But that's not just intrinsic motivation. We're seeing that organic extrinsic motivation. Organic. That was the word I was looking for. It's so organic. Organic. Thank you. It is. It's so organic. It's it's authentic. It's all the things you want student buy-in to be. You're not like making it, trying to sell them hard. They're invested because let me tell you something. If I don't get those colors right, in the morning for those 16 and 17 year olds, they will let me know immediately. Even if I've never seen their little black square fill with their face, that mic will click on in a hot second. They'll be like, excuse me, I revised that yesterday. I would like to be in the red color. Thank you. Um, it is, it is wildly motivating in a very gamified way that's both incredibly organic and, and very endearing because everybody buys into it. Everyone's on the same team and they start to really realize that they do have onus in their own learning and they can, in fact, pace themselves and be successful in their classroom, not only alone, but with help. 
Yeah, for sure. And and also like how validating is it for the kid who always felt like they were behind or like never had any idea what, what the heck was happening around them. And so like to see that, you know what, I'm not actually moving as slowly as I thought. There's this whole other group of kids that are moving at the same pace as as I'm moving to really bolster their own, I can do this, their own self-confidence. That also, I think, is, is sort of an underrated part of it. You know, we, we talk a lot about the kids who are working really quickly and, you know, really on the other end of it. But goodness, you know, I think that we had a whole host of students who slowly and steadily just knocked things out of the park and were so proud of themselves for doing it. And and it was like a very, it was, you know, to even to double back to that idea of, of differentiating and grouping and seeing who is where, these are not kids that without, you know, without this model, these are not kids that I necessarily would have assumed should be working together. And they very naturally found each other through this model within our classroom. It replaces a lot of that shame that they have and the intrinsic motivation gets turned up because they realize they're not alone. And I think a lot of those particular students who we often don't talk about who maybe need a little bit more support or just work at a slower pace are like, oh, you're like me. Let's be friends. Let's let's talk through this. Let's remind each other how to do these things. Let's not be ashamed to ask for the teacher to come over to our group to help because it's not just them asking. Yeah. And I always felt that revision uh, was so normalized in my modern classroom in part because of that public pacing tracker. I'd love to shift us kind of when we, we recently did the webinar on teaching ELA in a modern classroom and we had a lot of fun. Um, and we gave participants the opportunity to ask questions when they were registering. And one of the questions I really liked that we didn't have time to address on the webinar, and I think it can be uniquely answered for every modern classroom teacher, regardless of the subject taught. Um, but this teacher asked, how can we avoid a modern classroom becoming monotonous? So I'd love to hear how you have avoided monotony during this year, especially of remote and hybrid teaching, and what your plans next year are to avoid monotony. I think there's just so much flexibility, malleability, creativity within the program itself that if it is becoming monotonous, you might be too stringent just to begin with. Um, one of the things I found that really helped were the end unit reflections. So at the end of all my units, students do a Google form for me, wh- how well they feel they've attained their skills. And then there's a free space for them to say, what did you like? What didn't you like? Non-negotiable is reading. It's what we do here. So a lot of the times I'll get things from students in terms of suggestions. Like, I like that we did this thing, but I'd love it if we could do this. And they're adding their own ideas into class of what we could do or how we could expand something. And sometimes it's from a perspective that I didn't see. I'm like, oh, the Flipgrid review items. That would be really great if we added that to the end of the thematic journals. And it also would be a great opportunity for people who maybe didn't do so well in those thematic journals to get some extra points. Good suggestion. So there is a a way to include the student voice so that you make sure what you're doing isn't becoming too repetition because there is some repetition in what we do, but also allows them to engage and be creative in their engagement within the course itself. And I think just to add on to that, there's just so much opportunity for student choice um, in this 
program where I just really do feel like, you know, we build in so much flexibility and a lot of our should do and aspire to do activities that we create are often very creative. Like they are opportunities for students to express or show what they learned um, in a creative way. And, you know, we do lots of choice boards and we do all kinds of, um, you know, sometimes it's drawing, sometimes it's making a comic strip, sometimes it's, you know, writing a script or something like that. And it really does allow students to kind of express themselves in different ways. And then we actually have time to do them. Whereas I think like in, you know, maybe in previous years or in a more traditional classroom, those are the kinds of things that often get kind of like put off because it's like, oh, we just don't have time to do this. But they're, the students that really are engaged by things like that have really blossomed under this model because they do have those opportunities to express themselves creatively. And that's been really fun to see. Yeah, I was going to say that I, I hesitate with the word monotonous. I, I think there's a, a certain element, like Alicia was saying, of the of you know, implementing a modern classroom model into your classroom that's going to be routine oriented. And I, I don't know that routines are monotonous. I think that they're predictable. And I think that for students, that's really actually super helpful. You know, they know when they come into Elaine's, uh, Elaine and I's room that, you know, they are going to have the opportunity to work at, at the level that they're at. They know, they remember very clearly where they were yesterday. They know right where they're picking up and, you know, they know, our classroom has some other routines that we just enjoy that are part of, of our classroom, right? So you don't have to eliminate those things that are breaking up the monotony. We do like ridiculous circle questions to start off every class. I mean, and they are outlandish to say to say the least. And so there's like an element of that. And then there's a routine in our classroom. And so, you know, for kids especially that don't love to be surprised where they have no idea what's going to happen in class the next day, that, there, that element to me, in my opinion, is, is somewhat helpful. So I don't think it's... I don't think that the assignments are are monotonous. I think that that's where you really have the opportunity, like Alicia and Elaine were both saying, to to do this other stuff that so often gets we run out of time for, you know, or the or the student that could get there is waiting for the other kid to catch up, and so they never get to do it. Yeah, I completely agree. There were so many aspects of my modern classroom that. I kind of, I felt that a lot of my students who were hitting those aspire to do's, I I kind of would lean back and say like, oh, this is what I, this is what I thought teaching high school history was going to be like. These are all the things I thought we would cover. And it was, what was great about it is I, I felt that it was the students who were ready for that content, who had shown mastery on previous content, not just the students I assumed, you know, wanted that content, but I, I I could still sleep at night because my learners who really struggled were getting the support they needed. They were getting more of my time and my one-on-one attention. And, and that was important. I know we've talked about it a little bit. We've talked about how it, it sounds so cool because none of these, none of these things seem to live in isolation, the aspects of ELA. You know, we talked about speaking and listening and writing and reading. You know, we have units that incorporate all of these things, it sounds like. Um, and we talked a lot about grammar another aspect of uh, an English language arts classroom. And we've got a few questions from people who signed up for the webinar. I'm curious, have you taught grammar as a separate unit? Have you incorporated this in existing units? Um, Any tips you'd like to share on teaching grammar in your modern classroom? 
I, I have to, because we are the year where students are assessed and they have to take a writing, a formal writing state assessment, which requires them to have X amount of grammatical skills. So the beginning of the year, I, I do Nearpods where we focus on the eight basic parts of speech all the way through a positive structure as we go through the different types of sentences, semicolons, colons, commas, et cetera. So students really, I just need them to get to a certain point. And I lead them through this review because they do come in in all different ranges from having absolutely no idea to probably being the best I've ever seen. And so the nearbods that I do often require them to not only look at the notes, but interact with the notes. So I truly sit down at the beginning of the school year and I go through Billboard Hot 100 and I look for song lyrics that I could take out that they could find the verbs in or they could find, you know, whatever. And then they're all excited because I know who Megan the Stallion is. And I'm like, yes, I am amazing and cool. <laughs> um, I make sure it's light and fun and it's applicable to them. But then as we go through the year, after I feel that there has been an excellent level of accrued knowledge, so you've acquired the skills and I've seen you applied them in basic, I start to embed the grammar work into their reading and their writing and their listening and their speaking. So you can do this, uh, you know, you're going to do this analysis question sheet after you read this poem, but underneath, you know, question number three, it's going to ask you for a compound sentence and you're going to circle your common coordinating conjunction for me. Uh, you're going to use an a positive structure to describe a character from X story. Um, and then, of course, in their writing assignments, they're part of their rubric. So grammar, I list all the things I'm looking for, which is the eight basic parts of speech and I write out, you know, and then I would like you to also do X things. So it becomes kind of organic when they're reading, they're looking for answers to analysis or comprehension, but then they're also looking at an author's use of grammatical structures. So look for the subordinate conjunctions in the first paragraph. What impact does that have on the tone that the narrator discusses this particular character for? So it really becomes embedded within what they're doing because they realize that it's a part of everything that they do. So in the high school classroom, that's a little how it looks. No, I was going to say for sure. And sort of, you know, it's the interesting thing about grammar, in my opinion, it's really the most, uh, it's the topic that lends itself the most to mastery-based learning. Because if you don't know this step number one, you'll you'll never get, you know, if you can't identify the basic parts of speech in the sentence, well, then, you know, forget punctuating them. You, you, you're going to be needing to go all the way back. So truly to, to in- integrate this idea, and we've never done like a grammar unit in isolation, just because it's not, it doesn't really seem super functional. Um, and, and Alicia, I've never heard you talk about grammar because we didn't come up when we did our webinar, but Elaine and I actually were talking about this before we started to record this. And it was almost the same exact conversation of like, you have to kind of figure out where they are because there is such a huge range. And, and because it is such a mastery based set of skills you know, you kind of have to get everybody at least to some t- type of level playing field of sorts before you can kind of move forward or at least then allow them to self-pace from point A to get to wherever you're trying to, to go. And so um, we actually, and Elaine, I'm going to let you hop in here in just a second. We were, we, when we were talking about it, we were like, well, you know, 
we don't have quite the specific, you know, difficult skills that you might have as a high school class. But as teaching eighth grade, we also have a state level writing assessment that we are preparing for as well. And so we've tried to integrate other things like into some of our units or into some of our whole class practices just to keep just to keep everybody able to self-pace through knowing some of this stuff. Before we end, I would like to ask you a question that I just personally find interesting. So I ask quite a few of our podcast guests this question, and I would like to know how you've seen blended self-paced mastery-based learning impact your students academically and beyond academics. The impact has been profound, actually. And I think the number one most rewarding thing that, that really any teacher can, can achieve by the end of any given time with a student is to watch that student leave your classroom with more skills and, and for me, even more confidence in that skill or in your content area. You know, a lot of times at middle school, we get kids who are like, I hate English. I don't like to read. It's the worst class. And I'm like, well, you don't hate English because of me. You've never, you just met me, you know? And so when they leave our, our classroom, especially this year in this strangest, most bizarre of all years to really have watched these kids build and master the amount of skills that they have foundationally built and mastered has been so gratifying for me as an educator, but really for them as students, you know, to watch them go off to high school with a greater love for this content area and the confidence that they need to then be successful. Gosh, there's nothing more rewarding than that. Yeah. I think our kids have really, really blossomed under this model. And I think that, you know, some of the other skills, not just that, you know, your question Kate asks about academically, which I mean, obviously we've seen lots of skill building and things, but some of those other skills that they've gained from this has been, really the most mind-blowing of all to me to like watch them really self-regulate to watch them with their inquiry like the questions that they ask us as they're working through to even you know the way that they have taken risks and you know developed their own sense of you know direction in their education and really been able to push themselves in a lot of cases there we've had so many students who have taken those opportunities to do those aspire to do activities that maybe have never chosen to go above and beyond in English class ever before and all of a sudden they're like wow I'm actually good at this and this is something that I am capable of. And so they're, you know, as Jackie said, walking away to high school with these skills, but, you know, also sort of that confidence um, in our content area that they never had before. I'd say uh, for me in the high school level, it's, it's really been just amazing to see the growth. We've done four by four scheduling. So for two separate semesters, I, I've, I've just seen a sense of freedom to feel and truly be successful on their own field is priceless. I have a student who I was in their IEP and their case manager asked them about my class and how they were doing. And he was able to articulate all the ways he was able to not only be a self-advocate, but how he's structurally understood his own learning and his own learning process. Through the use of this model, the modern classrooms, he's able to know that these things work for me. I can push it here. I know that I need to improve there. I'm better if I collaborate here. Um, and that organic, authentic engagement from students is something that you cannot pay for 
anywhere that you get throughout the use of this model and you see students become excited and like Elaine and Jackie have spoken to want to take the next step and do maybe an aspire to do, or you've lit a fire that they didn't know they had for a certain part or aspect of English that they haven't been able to engage with because everything has been so traditional, so formulaic up to this point. And that is where we will end it. Thank you for everything you do for students. Thank you for kind of like we talked about making, making reading fun, engaging students in writing, make this not a, not a lone wolf process um, and being able to take more risks with speaking and listening. Um, so thank you for being the incredible and generous and innovative educators you are. I have so enjoyed um, our collaboration on the webinar. Jackie, Elaine, Alicia, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm going to think of a reason to have you all back soon. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us and have a good week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students in schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Podcast.